Welcome to Superintendent Radio Network. I'm Guy Cipriano. We have a treat for you on this podcast. We're looking back at 2018 with our friend Tim Morgan. Tim is the principal of Aspire Golf, and he writes a monthly column for GCI. Tim is always candid and comprehensive when speaking and writing, and we're just going to get right to the podcast. Well, Tim, thanks for joining us, and thanks for all your contributions to GCI this year. The first thing I want to ask you, for the unfortunate people out there that have never seen the Grainies or are unfamiliar with them, explain to our listeners and readers and followers what the Grainies are and how they started. Well, thank you very much, Guy, for the compliments. I also return the favor to GCI and yourself and Pat for putting up with my ramblings on a monthly basis. I really appreciate the opportunity, and I laugh. Uh, with the grainies, because I don't think there's a superintendent out there that watches televised golf that is tired of the word grain. We all probably just roll our eyes, and I don't know if we'll ever change. But obviously, Johnny Miller was the king of grain in that uh, I think he always had some reference to where the ball was going to go based on turf grass conditions. And I had so many superintendents that you got to do something about this guy. Even back in the day when I was with the mothership, you got to talk to this guy. And, and Johnny's a wonderful person, don't get me wrong. But the overuse of the grain term, you know, I'm, I'm sitting there and it just dawned on me uh, when I think I was probably watching ESPN's The Estes. And I said, well, we ought to, I said to my wife, Karen, I said, Karen, we have to do the grainies. Wouldn't that be kind of a year in review? We could have some fun with it. Kind of just kind of take, a, you know, one man's opinion on the golf world and, so obviously, I think if you—I uh, don't know how many years we've been doing this—but uh, uh, Johnny was our inaugural winner. Obviously, the, the namesake, the Grainies, was for Johnny, and now he stepped down. So we gave him a farewell, Grainy, an honorable mention, I guess, this year. And he can grow toward the setting sun, as he always told us over television. So that's kind of was the impetus behind the behind the awards, and obviously we fashioned it. Uh, along the the Academy Awards and the Oscars and trying to get different categories and what have you. So, you know, I might pick some people off along the way, but no one's stalked my house or confronted me at an airport or on a golf course. So usually everybody just says, it's oh, boy, I wanted to say that. I'm glad you said it. So we've had some fun with it. Yeah, what was your reaction earlier this year when you heard that Johnny Miller was going to retire from the NBC Golf Channel booth? Well, you know, it's kind of bittersweet because, I, you know, when I was – been with the USGA, and, and back in 94 5, we made the switch from ABC to uh, NBC at the time, and that's kind of when Johnny started. He was early on in his career, and you know, he was actually kind of interested in what was going on, and then it just morphed into what it is. But you know, I don't really have any issue one way or another uh, that he's stepping down. I mean, he's had a wonderful career, and I guess you know, at some point in your life, you, you want to enjoy life. and Instead of sitting in a 10 by 10 booth and watching other people play golf, he maybe want to go out and play a little golf. So, listen, he's he's done some miraculous things, and if you you go back into the history and you watch his swing in that period of time in the 70s, you know when when he said to a caddy, you know, is it, it what is it? And the caddy would say it's 165, 166. Well, no, what is it? It's either 165 or 166, and he was spot on with that swing and. You know, a lot of people thought it was the lunge to greatness, but, hey, i take that lunge any day of the week. So it is kind of bittersweet, but just like everything, life marches on, and, and it's time for somebody else to take his place, I guess. So good for Johnny and, you know, good for all he's done, and hope he enjoys retirement. This isn't 
necessarily a question that's based on Johnny Miller, but Tim, sometimes television golf commentators misspeak about agronomy or don't necessarily have all the facts. Does that hurt the cause and efforts of golf course superintendents when that happens? Oh, most definitely. Uh, most definitely, because the non-agronomic individual, uh, and while the professional golfer, the, the color analyst may be a good player, have some experience with the game, they don't know turf grass science, they don't know agronomy, they don't know preparation, so they misspeak. And now, is that the fault of or the superintendent and their staff and not providing enough information? I doubt that. Is it the fault of the broadcasting group and not trying to get the right facts? I probably will fault that, too. But I do know, again, going back to my previous life, uh, you know, that the, the TV producers, whether it was NBC, the Golf Channel, ESPN, would try to get information. But, you know, you, the problem is you can't summarize our information into a 30-second clip. You know, they're out on the golf course. If you look at, at Jimmy McKay's out there now, and I mean, they want a 15 to 30 second, what's Guy Cipriano doing with his shot, what's he got, and then we move on. You can't really put into 30 second clips why this is not true with grain or why the bunkers are this way or, you know, why the rough is what it is or, you know, or like, what was it, Brandel Chambly, so he should have Bermuda grass up there at Chambers Bay or just some of the comments that come across the air. But it's my theory of golf relativity, Guy, that the lower your handicap, the higher your IQ. So the general public hangs on every one of these guys' words because they can do something we can't, and that's hit a golf ball really, really well. So if they can hit a golf ball really well, really well they must know everything about everything. And they'll make inane comments about agronomics, architecture, the rules of golf, the setup, whatever it is. And it's difficult to do that, but to sit in a booth and try to summarize an agronomic process is not easy, and especially when you're not well-versed in the subject. So it does hurt us in some regard. Let's say a member or a customer comes up to a golf course superintendent and says, hey, I saw or heard this on TV. Why aren't we doing it? What are some ways a superintendent can handle that type of situation? Well, obviously, it's a financial thing and first, and then it's a staffing thing, and then it's a preparation thing, and then if it's a private club, it becomes an operational budget, which means it's money coming out of their pocket. Uh, you know, when it's a tournament golf thing, I, I don't know, I don't, somewhere between three, four hundred tournaments I've done in my lifetime, it's not an easy process. And anybody that goes through an event, amateur, professional, state, or local, it's not an easy process. So if a member comes up and says, hey, guys, and I was watching the Players' Championship, and why can't we do this? Well, okay, we may only be a, a small 18-hole golf course with a staff of, let's say, 15 on a limited budget. Not the same. The problem we face is everybody thinks that we're all the same, that there's not those that have more finances, more people, more equipment, more opportunity to prepare. So when someone says, well, I saw this on TV, well, that's the first mistake because they don't understand that, every televised event it takes months and sometimes years to get ready for and the staffs are big or in the case of the larger championships such as the masters the open the u.s open and the pga anywhere from 50 to 150 volunteers that also are doing any number of different chores 
day and night, 24 hours a day in many cases, and not every club. I, and and the, what I tell people is as, it, as it's morphed into what it is, my first U.S. Open was at the Olympic Club in 1987. There was a staff of 40 people for the 36 holes. They were unionized, so volunteers weren't going to commit to the thing because you have a union issue. Well, all of a sudden, it really jumped into the next world in 1997, 10 years later at, at Congressional with Mr. Latshaw, when we had over 100 volunteers on top of his 40-person staff. Now, now you've got 140 people. Uh, I don't know what the the open is. I mean, you're looking at 100, 150 volunteers uh, to the point where people are bumping into one another. So to tell a member, we have a staff of 12 plus our technician and our administrative assistant, they have a, a volunteer core of 150, you can get more done. And if it's a U.S. Open, you, you're preparing years in advance. I mean, my work was, you know, if I, if, if I was looking at, at Shinnecock Hills 2018 and I was still there, my work with Shinnecock is over that week. It's just a modern matter of monitoring conditions. I'm more concerned about what's going to happen in 2024 at Los Angeles Country, or whatever the date is, 23 at Los Angeles Country Club, or 25 at Oakmont, or 26 at Shinnecock, or wherever. I was more concerned eight, nine, ten years down the road. Uh, so people just don't grasp the enormity of that when they just say it's on TV. It's like watching the Super Bowl and and seeing something done at, at halftime and then going to your high school football coach. Hey, I was watching the Super Bowl the other day. Can we do this? doesn't work. Tim, as you look back at 2018, how would you characterize the year and what were some of the positive things you saw? Well, I would say the first positive thing, as I mentioned in the Grady's, is Augusta National having a, a women's amateur event played at Augusta National. I think that is fabulous. It's long overdue for a club like that. And Fred Ridley, and, the, and, and it was probably started long before Mr. Ridley, Chairman Ridley, made the announcement. But I, I thought that was fabulous. You know, it follows up with their. their uh, chip and putt and drive chip and putt competition, which I think between them and the USGA and the PGA, I mean, that's a fabulous deal. So to go have a, a major women's golf championship at Augusta, I think is very cool. So that was one thing that I really enjoyed uh, a lot. Uh, you know, and I, I did, I think the other thing, obviously, the Tiger at, at Eastlake uh, was pretty cool to get everybody fired up about golf again. That was very exciting. Uh, I did, you know, from a turn, obviously, I, I pay attention to the majors because that was kind of my my previous life and i thought all four majors uh were really good i feel bad for for carlos at bell reeve to have it so soft and wet and hot just kind of unfortunate weather uh but he did you know he did pull it out his staff should be commended that was all all that stuff people just don't know uh that was very exciting um i think it was kind of i thought it was kind of a slow year there wasn't a lot going on uh, but there was, those are a few of the things that kind of got me pumped up about about golf again. How about the industry side of golf, Tim? I've had a lot of superintendents tell me that 2018 might have been the most challenging year of their career. Did you see a lot of that in your travels, or were pe- are people just stuck in the moment right now thinking it's maybe the most challenging thing they've ever done? No, I, th- I think it's been it's been a year long thing. And, and then we obviously gave Mother Nature a, a you know, worse performance because it was just not a good year. And, and I don't care. I mean, I remember in Minneapolis, superintendents are getting ready in the spring and the weather's good. And all of a sudden, early April, it goes 
plummeting below zero and they get a blizzard and, and they're put back four weeks for everything to unfreeze and snow to melt and they go from you know 35 and snowing and two weeks later in the middle of may it's 95 and it's summertime in in my old neck of the woods up in jersey uh, you know it did nothing but rain and it's still raining up there it just was a miserable horrid year down here where i live now in the southeast again it was rain and there is definitely a, a swing in the climate i don't care what anybody says uh you know we've gotten whacked by hurricanes whether it was michael or florence here on hilton head we had michael a couple years ago uh it's 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 the weather has been brutal you go to texas it's been 110 in the shade and then you get fires in california uh it for a golf course superintendent to endure natural disasters uncontrollable weather i don't know how the guys do it frankly it's it's amazing and i've seen it from toronto to miami to los angeles to portland it's just all around the country has been miserable in our december issue which the grannies appeared in we also had our turf heads takeover which is reader submitted content and we had six submissions tim just about work-life balance have you heard that term more this year than any year of your career and what are some of the the mental challenges you think the business is bringing on superintendents right now Work-life balance, I can recall, this is, to me it's not anything new because 30, 40 years ago everybody worked just as hard and at that time had just as many stresses, okay? You still had highly critical members wanting something better and you worked hard. I can recall back in my Pinehurst days, this goes back almost 40 years, where I'm, I'm working every day, all day long, not taking a day off and my previous uh, boss came up to visit and you know we he was we were standing in the clubhouse and there was a picture of and I worked on course number three and it was built in I don't know 1903 or whatever and this is 1979 and Fred standing there Fred Mead actually distinguished this uh, board winner from the Carolinas said look at look at these look at this picture this is number three it was built in 1903 and I'm like well what's your point he says you know the golf course is still here. It's not going anywhere. You might want to take a day off or you're not going to be long for this business. Now, that's 1979. And I've always, you know, whether it was at Pinehurst, was it Myrtle Beach, Texas, or, or Ponte Vedra, we worked. So this is, to me, it's nothing new. I think people are more aware of it because of stress and what it's doing to us health-wise that the bottom line is it's really grass, and it, I know it's our livelihood. I don't mean to belittle it in any way, shape, or form, but you have family. You have to have some other alternative uh, things to do because you, you drive yourself crazy. The golf course, and let, you know, for most of us, is never going to be perfect. Um, so I think you're going to have to do something, whether it's exercise, whether it's being alone time, a hobby, family time, whatever, you got to get away from the golf course, you know, and then it, it, it's just the, the members have got to change and, and they've got to realize that these kind of conditions cost money, take time, and require equipment and labor. So for the superintendent to be over, you've got to take time off. You've got to get away. I mean, Matt Schaefer used to leave Marion, uh, you know, he'd call it a, at the end of the year, come Thanksgiving or to Christmas, Matt would disappear from Marion and go to Florida for two months instead of get away and, and regroup so he could come back the next year. And uh, 
not everybody can have that situation, but there's, there's, you, you've got to have time away from the golf course. You know, family is more important, and your mental health and physical health is much more important than the golf course. Tim, these crazy stretches where superintendents are working 30, 40, 50, 60 days in a row, how much of that is linked to members and customers demanding that from the superintendent, and how much of that is the superintendent putting that on him or herself? Oh, I think it's a little bit of both, and I think it's because, one, first off, we're not building a lot of golf courses, so you're in a position where you're going to have to perform or they're going to find someone else, and, and, and supply... Uh, is there for the demand. You know, if, you, if you're not going to perform, guy, well, you know what, we can get Tim from down the street to come in and take your place. So then there's the added pressure being there all the time. And I think that's unfair. Uh, so it's, it's part it, it's part our fault for, for going the extra yard when sometimes is really our extra effort really going to change anything immediately? Or are we so worried about our jobs? And then the members, again, the non-agronomic lack of understanding of what we do. Uh, you know, I mean, you can just, all you got to do, the critics usually have soft hands and soft bellies as opposed to people that are doing the work that don't have, that have hard hard hands and hard bellies. So it's a whole different attitude. I, I think we do it to ourselves because a lot of us are perfectionists and hardworking. That's in our gene pool. But again, you know, you're trying to meet the, the expect, unreal expectations of a lot of memberships. Switching the topic up a little bit, Tim. One debate that did not go away this year, and it doesn't look like it's going to go away next year, is the distance debate and how far the golf ball travels. Where do you stand on this one? The ball don't go far for me anymore. You know, I, and I, I, I'm not a, a, a bad player, but I'm not really a good, good player. I've played with some really great players. Um, you know, as you age, you lose flexibility. And, yes, I, I'll move, I'm going to move up a tee. I'm looking forward to moving up a tee. I can play your back tees, and I can play the forward tees. It doesn't matter to me. But the ball don't go far for me, and it doesn't go far on the golf courses I play. Why? Because they were soaking wet this year. And then last, Thursday, last Wednesday I was in Southern California, and I played with my father-in-law, who was 84, and the two other guys in the group, one was 87 and the other one was 79. And the ball don't go far for these guys. But they love playing. And if you roll back, let's say, 5% of their average distance, they are really going to be frustrated. I'm not a proponent of rolling back the golf ball. I just don't think that's going to help us in the game. For the tour player who's on track man, who's trained, gets everything fitted for them, club, shaft, balls, of course they're going to hit. I'm sorry, Dustin Johnson's going to hit a range ball 350 yards. You know, whether he hits his tailor-made golf ball or whatever he plays, or he hits a plastic uh, solid range ball. He's going to hit it far because he's trained to hit it far. The rest of us are, re- are recreational golfers who want to go have some fun and look forward to that once in a lifetime where you really flush it and everybody feels good. And, and you know, it's one of the three greatest feelings in the world to hit a golf ball well. And then you, 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 you're going to take 5% off of that because, oh, the, the, the great classic golf courses aren't going to be able to be played anymore. Well, by whom? They may not be able to be played anymore by Tiger and Dustin and Rory and Jordan, but the members still enjoy that design. So we're worried about 0.09% of those that play the game. Now, the USGA will not bifurcate. I don't know if that will ever happen, uh, where they have two sets of rules. They, they are changing the rules. They are making them a little easier to understand. But the, the 
allegedly they're the same for the best and the worst. But I'm not in favor of the rolling back the golf ball. And everybody gets up in arms when they look at the Open Championship. You look at Carnoustie this year, and, and the place was like playing down the freeway. Well, that's the style of the golf there. And the ball will go far there, and it'll go really far for those guys that are really good at hitting it far. Uh, I enjoy playing over there because I do get a little roll. But I'm playing here in South Carolina and New Jersey, and, and the atmosphere and the environment was soaking wet. I mean, the ball's landing where it stops where it lands. I mean, I taste off some drives yesterday, and, and it was you know, 50 degrees here in South Carolina and wet. My, my fly distance might be 225, 230. I'm not getting the extra 15 to 20 yards bounce and roll because it's part of the deal. I move up a tee, but I, I don't think, you know, this alarm about we're ruining these great old classic golf courses, are we really? For who? You know, we've turned fairways into putting greens. We do everything to fairways now that we did to putting greens 20 years ago. So you would hope the ball would go a little bit better. Between sand top dressing, growth regulation, sophisticated irrigation, brown is the new green, you know, incredibly precise mowing units, you would hope the ball would go a little far, but does it really go that much further for the average 15 handicapper? I don't think so. Maybe it's because... I've covered a lot of athletes who have played a lot of sports at a, a high level, but do you think sometimes in this distance debate in golf, some people aren't giving athletes like Dustin Johnson and Brooks Kepka and Rory McIlroy and some of the others, do you think sometimes they're just not getting enough credit for being better athletes than what we once had in the sport? For being in better shape? Of course not. I mean, look at, okay, let's take the three, arguably the three greatest that anybody's uh, ben Hogan, Jack Nicholas, Tiger Woods. All right, Hogan was a smaller guy, but he was fit and he was strong and he got a lot out of his game. Then you go to Nicholas, the power game, and, you know, no one was talking about, you know, the game coming to an end because he drove it 300 yards with a mush ball back in the 60s and 70s. And Tiger, But then Tiger turned it around and, you know, some of his physical preparedness, I think, may have hurt his game. But these guys are flexible. They do strength exercises. They practice a lot, and, they, and they're in shape. They eat well. They sleep well. They, they're not Walter Hagen and Sam Snead out all night long. You know, I mean, they're focused on what they do. And it's just the whole metamorphosis of sports, you know. I mean, we went from, you know, Bill Russell to Magic Johnson to Michael Jordan to LeBron. I mean, good golly. Uh, LeBron in the 60s would just tear it up. Uh, not that Bill Russell and Wilt Chamberlain and, and all those guys were bad players, but, I mean, it's just it's the nature of the of the beast and the, the, the science, the research, the training, and the knowledge. Everything gets better every day. I've never heard the NBA commissioning a study to raise the basket from 10 feet. Exactly. Exactly. Now, I will tell you, in, in hockey, uh, as the players get larger and faster, the same with tennis. That's a confined playing surface. You know, at least in golf, for the better players, we can add length if we have property. But you're not going to take, uh, you know, a hockey player that in the 80s averaged, let's say, 5'10 and 185 to now where they average, let's say, 6'2", 215. That's, that's a significant jump. And with the speed, you know, these guys are faster skaters and they're bigger, but they're still playing. 100 by 200. And then you add the technology, uh, just like in golf for hockey and tennis, 
you know, it, 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 it becomes a power and speed game. I mean, you look, you watch the only surfaces in tennis. I mean, Wimbledon and and the French Open at Roland Garros, there's a surface that at least takes some of the oomph off the, off the tennis ball. But they also have different tennis balls for different competitions. So, you know, it's, it's golf is, is different in that everybody can choose their own equipment and their own uh, implement to knock around the golf course. Uh, tennis, you're kind of, this is what you play with. The NBA, this is what you play with. The NHL, you, we all play with the same implement. Uh, or ball, I guess what I would be a better word for it. So I'm sure there's studies because, I mean, again, I'll go back to hockey where in the, the days of the Broad Street bullies, elbow pads and shoulder pads were cloth and leather. Now they're hard plastic. Take an elbow to the jaw today is a little different than taking it to the jaw 40 years ago. It's just materials. Um, I don't know. It's a tough one to call, but science is involved and everybody's getting better and technology changes by the minute. Tim, I'm looking at this PGA Tour schedule, and it's completely different than it has been. What are your thoughts about some of the changes in tournament golf with the dates, and how will that affect agronomy? Well, the first one, and we talked about it, I think what Pete Bavakwa did with the PGA of America uh, is wonderful because I always felt bad, and having done uh, senior opens, women's opens, Amateur Championships, uh, Curtis Cup, Walker Cup in August. I don't, unless you're in the absolute perfect climate, it's not easy. And you really want to, you know, when you have a player friendly surface, those guys are that good that they'll take advantage of it. So I think what Pete did, kind of as the outgoing CEO of the PGA, getting his or their championship uh, into May will be wonder, do wonders for the PGA, open up a whole bunch of new venues. And even with the old venues, uh, Ballas Raw or Hazeltine, uh, Medina, you know, these now, if, hey, you play those golf courses in May, you got a totally different surface. And yeah, you might have some weather issues, but you could have some really good surfaces. And then again, that you, you open it up to uh, new venues with Beth Page being next year. I think that'll be a fabulous PGA site. So the schedule is good. The players back in March, I mean, that always, I always, again, I'm partial towards the TPC, having been on the crew uh, back in the day. It's always a favorite event of mine. It's, it's uh, you know, back in its traditional date in March. So I think that'll be fun. Um, the ever the, the never-ending season, I get a little tired of watching golf. Uh, but now, at least with the majors, uh, and I would include the TPC in that, you're going to have really to look forward to something in March, May, June, July, and then, you know, the Tour Championship at the end of the year. I mean, it, it spaces it out much better for me. Um, it's kind of hard for me. I've been watching golf for a long, long time, and, and uh, to, yeah, I might tune in the, the, the regular tour on a Saturday and Sunday just to see what's going on, but I think for the majors it's going to be wonderful. One that sticks out to me is the WGC Championship in July – at TPC Southwind, a week after the Open Championship in Ireland, how brutal is that going to be agronomically and for the players? Well, it's just, yeah, it depends on your weather in Ireland, which will probably be 60s and wet, or you know, it's just typical British Isles uh, climate. You know, just from one thing to another. But to come back to what Southwind's in Tennessee is that where it is? Yep, Memphis. Yeah, so welcome to heat and humidity in July. Is it, and it's all—it's it, it, nothing you can do about that. And you know there'll be some players that, that 
will want to come back and some that won't want to come back, depending on what kind of week they had at the Open Championship. But it, it's going to be a shock to the system. I mean, it's like playing the Open at Pebble Beach and having that June gloom and, and the fog locked into the to the to the Stillwater Cove, and then just going you know back to the Northeast forever for the next event, or going back in the day, you'd go from Westchester in June, you know, or it could be hot and humid, and next thing you know, you're out in the Monterey Peninsula, and it's you know it's 60 degrees and overcast, and it's you know just freezing to death. So it's a game played outdoors. People forget that, and it's up to the player to adjust to the conditions. And while it's not easy, uh, I. If I was good enough to trade places with some of those guys, I'd be glad to do it. Tim, there's not a regular annual PGA Tour event in Chicago, Boston, or New York City. Does that hurt golf? That's a good question, Guy. I think uh, for the major cities, you know, the, the, the thing that I always recall with some of the USGA events is, is major cities in the summertime, there's a lot else to do. Um, you know, New York, Chicago, L.A. In the middle of the summer, you got a boatload of things to do, from baseball to being outside to going to the lake for picnics, whatever it is you want to. In L.A., go to the beach, surf, whatever it is you want to do. There's a lot of competition for golf, so it's going to have to be a, a very uh, unique event to be in the major cities. And I think when you get to, especially Los Angeles, you know, it's got to be a, a happening for a lot of people to go to. I think the U.S. Open at the Los Angeles Country Club will be a happening. And people will be curious because that club spent years refusing to have an event, and now they're going to have. They had the amateur, now they're going to have this one. And the same with Best Page. I mean, in 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 the middle of summer in New York City, you got the Mets, the Yankees, you got the Jersey Shore, you got the mountains, you got your own golf course to hang out at. It's kind of hard to spend a boatload of money to go watch other people play golf. So I think that that hurts in some regards uh, that those major cities have a a lot more going on, but. Is it good for the game? Probably not. You know, you look at the at the uh, whatever they call it now. I always call it the LA Open over at, at Riviera. I mean, that's happening. There's a lot of stuff going on, and I think. But if that event was not played in February, it was played in June or July. Uh, would it be as successful? You know, that's that's the thing. There's just a lot going on in major cities. Tim, where are we at with golf on the grassroots level? Are you seeing a lot of encouraging? things are you seeing a lot of young people playing are you a lot of are you seeing a lot of women and minorities playing are, are there some strides being made at the grassroots level with the game well i i do uh i first off i want to look at the glass as half full but i will tell you uh, as an independent contractor whose services are based on disposable income i had a great year in 2018 and i had a pretty and, and uh, i've had up and down but i had a great year this year and I'm very thankful for all those people that had me come in. But every place I've gone, I've seen junior programs. I've seen uh, beginner programs. Uh, I have asked clubs, and they said their rounds are up. The club is doing well. They have, you know, they're not taking any more members. They have too many members. Uh, I, I see it. And I think the NGF re- released their statistics, and that said rounds are up. They're not up as well prior to 2008 when we had our economy crash. But rounds are getting up. And what the one thing I, I found interesting is they stated beginner rounds are up. I think you can contribute that to what you see on TV, obviously, that golf is a cool game. I think there's a Tiger Woods factor. Uh, I also think that uh, Top Golf and some of those uh, type of facilities are helping people try the sport, which is good. 
and and I also see a lot of clubs doing small projects of rebuilding greens, tees, drainage, irrigation systems, uh, clubhouse work. They are spending money on their property, which means they have it, which means they're busy, and busy is good. So I think it's a it, you know, and, and I look at our place. Uh, we have a huge uh, female uh, activity. Uh, our women's golf program, which was implemented by our previous director of golf, Heidi Wright, who's now out in California doing the same thing at Mesa Verde Country Club, she had, I mean, our women's participation here at Moss Creek was huge. And I love it. I mean, I think it's great to get everybody on the golf course. I don't care who you are. Just go hit it. And uh, I'm all for it. And I, I do see it the kids' program. It, it's there's always a kid session somewhere uh, where you get 20 or 30 kids running around, which is even better. I think it's great. Don't laugh at this one, Tim, but I visited a club. I'm not going to say where or the name of the club that starts their junior program when the kids are two years old. How would you feel about seeing a bunch of two-year-olds running around the golf course? Would that encourage you or would that concern you? Hey, I put a set of skates on when I was four, so what difference does it make? Uh, you know, I mean, you can get your kid involved in whatever sport you want, whether it's golf, swimming, tennis, hockey, basketball, or baseball. If uh, they get somebody out there and it's something for a kid to do and they can try, hey, why not? If it's a, if it doesn't work, that's okay. Go in a different direction. But, uh, I mean, you look at, at any old photo of any great athlete, they're usually starting pretty young and they get hooked on a sport, um, so why not? Give it a shot. It's all part of the grow of the game, I think, in some way, shape. we got to worry about – my generation's got to worry about the next generation. You know, and then it's got to be a trickle-down effect to keep this sport active. I agree that it's a niche niche sport, that, that a niche sport, however it's pronounced, but uh, you got to keep contributing. And, and if, if it's a babysitting kind of a phony thing, well, then that's one thing. But if it, there's some kids that actually get started and they keep pursuing it and so on and so forth, then why not? Are we going to see more robots on the golf courses anytime soon? Well, I think that's the way the world is going. Autom- automation is out there. Um, if you, fi- you know, I'm sure you follow uh, the, the, the Twitter response. Chris Tritterbaugh from Hazeltine is saying that you know for the next Ryder Cup they'll probably be, you know, 100% automated fairways, maybe some greens. I think if you can do it, why not? But my only question is, how does the mower in front know that the mower behind is leaking oil or whatever i mean there's always there's going to be those second guessers and that you know things but i think there's going to be more and more of it i mean we've got automated spray programs fertilization programs irrigation programs we've got automated greens carts whatever i mean it's just a matter of time i mean we're talking about you know google directed cars where i don't even have i just sit behind the wheel and the car will take me to where i gotta go it's coming sooner or later but I think if you take the human element completely out of, out of, especially the maintenance end of things, I don't know if that's good or bad. I haven't really decided on that one yet. What technology have you seen released in maybe the last 10 to 15 years that's helped superintendents the most? Is there one that sticks out? Uh, the automated spray tank and spraying units, where as far as proper dosage, saving on chemicals, spot site-specific spot application, that, that really kind of is amazing to me, uh, let alone what we're doing with the drones and the, 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 the mapping and, and how you can kind of program your golf course, et cetera. I mean, I'm not too uh, – I'm sure the irrigation industry's got stuff that changes by the minute, but I, I, I do think that the opportunity to, 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 for your chemical programs to be so site and spot specific. And then I think last year we talked about it in the grainies with the 
the herbic the spot herbicide applications in the agricultural business where it identifies the plant and applies the herbicide. I mean, that's coming too. So if we don't already have it, that I'm not aware of. So, yeah, that kind of stuff is awesome to me. It really takes the human error out of things. Last thing here, Tim. What would you like to see in 2019? What would be a good year for golf course superintendents and the golf industry in your mind? The two things, unfortunately, that our industry can't control are the two things that influences it the most. Weather and people. And you can't control either one. I would like to see, I hope there's a little break for everybody, but I'm a little concerned about our climate and how it is evolving. So I don't know if we're going to see more rain events, more snow events, hotter weather. I, I can't control that. We can only learn and adapt to it. But I wish people, the non-agronomic individual would be a little more understanding and, and just not be as ignorant to the dedication and hard work that the superintendent and their staff must give to the golf course to provide those people that are playing the golf course the enjoyment they expect. I, I just think we need to give the staff a little bit of a break uh, and try to be a little more understanding of what it is they do on a daily basis for us, the dues-paying member or guest. Well, Tim, it was great having you on the podcast. Again, thanks for everything you've done for GCI and the golf industry this year, and we can't wait to see what you write in 2019. I'm sure you got some fun things planned. Got a couple of fun things, and uh, going to interview some fun people. Hopefully we can get it. And, and then going back to that work-life balance, I, I've got a couple of thoughts that maybe in the next month or two so we can go into the year in the right frame of mind. But, again, thank you, Guy, and thank GCI. I really enjoy the time and, and everything you've done for me and for everybody out there. Happy holidays and Merry Christmas, and we'll see you in San Diego.